Well, Christianity is, it's all about a message. At its core is this message, this presentation. The world has a problem, Christianity has the solution, yet something strange, something interesting has happened in the past 50 years, where for the first time this message has changed in a big way like never before. A group of Christians has arisen who have changed this message. Now there's millions of them. Of course, God and Jesus are still the key to the message, but the problem has changed, and so the solution has changed. The problem used to be sin and death, and so the solution was faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross. And now the, the problem is different, though. Now the problem is being unhealthy or being poor or not having enough stuff, not being successful. And so the solution has changed to meet this new problem. The message has changed now the message is just go, go to God because he, he wants to give you everything you want. Health, wealth, success, abundance, prosperity. Don't worry so much about the next life. God wants you to have your best life right now. If you're unaware, I'm talking about what's called the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth Gospel. The word gospel means good news. It refers to the message of Christ, the good news that he brought with his work. Yet, if these people, they're subscribing to a new message, a new gospel, it's called the prosperity gospel. Perhaps the, the chief leader of this new message, you all, you all know who it is, Joel Osteen. Uh, I've talked about him before. He, he definitely provides us something to talk about, plenty of sermon illustrations at least. Joel Osteen leads the largest church in America, and his messages are broadcast to millions of people across the world. And so talk about a huge influence. Huge. So what's his message? How is he presenting Christ and Christianity to the world? It's a message of prosperity. Osteen says, quote, If you develop an image of, of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold you from these things, end quote. If you just think positive and believe you'll succeed, you will. Nothing can stop you. Health is promised. If you want a good life, a long-lasting life, just believe that you will have it and God will give it to you. Another prosperity gospel preacher, Rod Parsley, said, quote, Jesus is not sick. I don't have to be sick. Let's settle the matter once and for all. God does not want you sick, end quote. That's what's promised. Another guy, T.D. Jake, says, quote, you're entitled to have wellness in your body. Stop begging for what you're entitled to, end quote. It's, it's yours. Health is yours. You're entitled to it. Just, just take it. Also, wealth is promised. Osteen said before, quote, before we were ever formed, God programmed us to live abundant lives, to be happy, healthy, and whole, end quote. Elsewhere, he said, quote, God wants to increase you financially. By giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. God wants to give you your own house. End quote. Yeah, that sounds good. I want a house. <laughs> Relatedly, prosperity is promised. More than just health and wealth, God, God is working hard to give you a good life. I've seen promises, quote, it's, it's going to happen. Suddenly, your situation will change for the better. He will bring your dreams to pass. End quote. You'll be successful because God wants you to be. You just have to want it yourself. A final quote. God wants us to have healthy, positive self-images. To see ourselves as priceless treasures. He wants us to feel good about ourselves. God sees you as a champion. He regards you as a strong, courageous, successful 
overcoming person, end quote. When you hear all this, you might think, that doesn't sound that bad. And what's really wrong with this message? He's just being optimistic. And we really shouldn't be so hard on these guys. There's so much negativity going around. They're just trying to be positive. They're just trying to help people feel happy and hopeful. What's wrong with that? What you need to understand is the latent danger behind this message. Just picture this. Picture a drill sergeant. He's preparing a new squad of fresh recruits, taking them through boot camp, preparing them for deployment in Afghanistan. And part of his training is physical. He's putting them through a, a grueling physical conditioning to get them ready for battle. But another part of his training is mental. He's mentally preparing them for what to expect on the battlefield. Now, what if you had a drill sergeant, though, who just, just wanted to be optimistic? He just wanted to be positive and just tell you all the good things, not be negative. So he tells you what life is going to be like as a soldier. He says, look, you're going to get three free meals a day. And you can eat all you want. And surprisingly, the food's not that bad. You're going to have all the workout equipment you want. It's like, a, it's like a free gym membership. And even though you'll be in the desert, don't worry. There'll be plenty of water. Don't worry about that. You'll have time to relax. You'll have time to work on your tan. There'll be plenty of free time. You can even play some video games. It's really not that bad. Plus, you're going to build great friendships. You're going to be part of a lifelong brotherhood. Maybe you'll even meet your future wife out there on the battlefield in the female military personnel. You're going to get to see the world. You're going to get to travel. All expenses paid. That's never going to happen again in life. And when you're all done, you come home, college tuition paid for. You get to enjoy military benefits for life. People, people will love you. They will honor you as a veteran forever. That sounds pretty good. I mean, that doesn't sound like a, a bad deal whatsoever. Well, what's wrong with this picture? Isn't the drill sergeant missing some critical information in his message to the new recruits. If he's really trying to prepare them to be soldiers, shouldn't he tell them the whole picture? What about the gruesome realities of war? What about the suffering, even the death they might potentially face? Yeah, these are negatives, true, but, but they're also reality. And soldiers need to be prepared that they need to know that they could lose limbs. They may get captured. They may get tortured. They may get lost. At times, their needs won't be met. They may be hungry, thirsty, cold. The constant stress of war may get to them. They may face depression, loneliness, anger, regret. I know these things aren't fun to talk about. But if your goal is to make a better soldier, you have to tell them. Who's going to make a better soldier after all? The one who is prepared or not? The one who is informed or not? The one who knows what really to expect or not? It's pretty much a no-brainer, which is why every drill sergeant does inform his recruits of what to expect. But you see, this is one of the problems of this prosperity gospel. Just one, without even really talking about a lot of their message, just the core of what they say they're setting up false and unbiblical expectations. They promise health and wealth and prosperity nonstop. And if you don't get it, it's your fault. Because God wants to give it to you. But eventually what happens for the person in the pew sitting, listening to this message, what happens? Reality happens. They get cancer. They lose their job. They go broke. They get marriage trouble. They get sick. Even they get persecuted for believing in Jesus. And they think, what's wrong with me? 
that this shouldn't be happening. I wasn't expecting this. This is not what the deal was. They were not expecting it. They were not prepared for it, even though that's reality. And, and when reality truly sets in, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to handle the suffering because they're misled. So they either fall into error or they fall into sin or they just fall away. This is a huge tragedy and travesty. So many people are being led astray because they're not being prepared for the real Christian life, which involves suffering. They're not ready to suffer like their Savior did. And so when the trouble finally comes, they're the first to defect. They're not prepared to, like Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.3, to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. They're not ready for the real Christian battlefield, so to speak. Speaking of Paul, time and time again, he writes to prepare us for what's to come. If anyone, Paul knew that the Christian life involves suffering. If you dare, if you dare follow Jesus, you can expect trials and tribulations. Immediately, if, if you follow Christ, you, you, make, you just made thousands, if not millions of enemies. And many of them will want to persecute you. You may suffer generally in life. You may suffer because of the faith. But either way, just by definition, following Christ, it's going to come with affliction. Now, I think you know this point, but if you could just humor me, I want to labor this point a little bit further. And I want to show you just a lesson from Paul's life. So actually, we're going to get to 1 Peter this morning a little bit, but I want to start off with 2 Corinthians. Take your Bibles, open them there. We're just going to be in that one book for for the time being. But I want to show you just a, a sketch of Paul's life from 2 Corinthians. I wonder... I really wonder what what the health and wealth guys, what they think about Paul. Because he didn't have health and wealth and prosperity. He most certainly did not have his best life right now. Was that his fault? Was he doing something wrong? Was he just not being positive enough? Could he have gotten it if he wanted it? What's the deal? Paul, he he was just being a Christian. He, He was just being a Christ follower. He was just living for the Lord, and that's what he got. He got suffering in return. And if you really follow the Lord as well, you can expect the same thing. Maybe not to the same degree as Paul, but certainly in like kind. This is just what comes with the territory in following Jesus. If you're at 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 1. We're going to hop over a few texts, just read them, and show you a quick sketch of his life. You tell me what the Christian life looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just start at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's going on here? What's all this affliction? What's he talking about? They seem to be, Paul seems to be afflicted. The Corinthians seem to be afflicted. Verse 5. He says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Which is effective in, in what? The patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
And our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. What's the picture so far? This just sounds like a lot of suffering. Paul has suffered a bunch. These Corinthians are suffering. Paul is able to comfort them because he's been there, done that. He can now comfort them. But now they are sharers together in Christ's abundant suffering. Verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware. He doesn't want them to be uninformed here, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope. I'm going to stop there. Paul is writing 2 Corinthians after a couple missionary journeys. He's already traveled around. And what's he encountered? Does this sound like a, a Christian life of, of health and wealth and abundance and prosperity? It, it sounds to me like a, like a life of affliction and suffering. Persecution everywhere he went, he encountered in one form or another hardship. This is just the first chapter. Let's jump ahead to chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 now. It's amazing how much is in this one letter which he writes after encountering so many trials on his first few missionary journeys. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, pick it up at verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In other words, we are weak. God is strong and he's going to get the glory. But how does he describe us? Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. It's a life of affliction. Now jump down to verse 16. Get these two verses, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. That's a lot to say after all that suffering. We don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 4, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are seen are which are not seen are eternal. So pick up on this. Verse 16, he says what? The outer man is decaying. It's going down. It's not going to last. Paul wasn't into, he wasn't living for health, this body, this world. He valued his the inner man, the spiritual self, way more. And then catch verse 17. You know, by no means would we call Paul's intense suffering you know, momentary and light. But he's comparing it to eternal glory, and by comparison, it is. It's nothing compared to eternity. But just, just from this already, what was Paul living for? 
What was following Christ all about for him? And he's just a model of faith for us. Was it all about your best life now? Was it all about health and wealth and prosperity in this life? No. He says the things which are seen, the stuff of this life, that they're temporary. They're, they're grass. They're going to burn. Paul was about health and wealth and prosperity in the next life. We're living for eternity. We're living for the next life. To the world, that, that's the stupidest thing they've ever heard of. It's foolishness to the world. But to those who know Christ, it, it's the best deal ever. It makes perfect sense. Wouldn't have it any other way. Let's keep reading. I want to pile this on because it builds up to a crescendo. Look at chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. We'll just read through this one in a straight shot. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 4. He says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, and here's his depiction, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. And that, that's the Christian life right there. And he picks it up. He says, regarded, how, how do people think of him? Regarded as deceivers and yet true. Verse 9, as unknown and yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Look at that. This is Paul's life. Poor, hungry, weak, oppressed, afflicted. He had nothing, but he had everything. He had Christ, and he had everything. Everything he needed. You know, Paul, what a loser. If you would just think positive, if you would just trust God more, believe that God wanted him to have a great life, he could have had it. He could have succeeded. He could have improved his standard of living. could have had lots of stuff. He could have really had a lot of money in life. He could have done a lot. He could have gone places. That's too bad for him. See how opposite this is to just the basic testimony? and snapshot of, of one Christian's life in Scripture. It all comes to a, a climax in chapter 11. You might be familiar with this passage. This is our last one. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. You might be familiar with this one, but you may not have known how much he was building up to this throughout 2 Corinthians. His final report of, of affliction in his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, pick it up, verse 23. It says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm I more so. Well, what's his, what's his servant of, life, of, of Christ's life look like? He says, In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, remember that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, 
dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, he knows that I am not lying. What's up with this? What's up with Paul's life? Why was he suffering so much? You may think, well, that's just Paul. He's a special case. It's like an exception. It doesn't really count. He was an apostle, early church. They suffered a lot. That, that, that time is gone. We should expect prosperity now, though. I mean, Paul is a special exception. But not so much. Now, Paul was special. God knew that not everyone could handle that level of affliction. He did suffer quite a bit. But his experience, in essence, was normal. It's just what happens to one degree or another when you, you sign up to follow Christ. It's what you're signing up for. Today, you may not be executed. You might not be persecuted heavily for following Christ. But one form or another, you will suffer. And it still happens. Even today, the pastor in Iran sits rotten in an Iranian jail cell just for being a follower of Christ. This is not an exception. This is expected. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells them, he says, you all suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 12, he says, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no exceptions listed there. If you desire to live godly in Christ, expect it. And here's this one, Acts 14.22. He's talking to the people and he says to these Christians, Paul is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That was his message to these young Christians in, in the churches as he was going around. Through many tribulations we must enter enter the kingdom of God. You know when he said that? Remember that time where he just said I was one time I was stoned? This is right after. This was just a few days after he was stoned by the Jews, nearly dead, dragged outside the city, left for dead. He recovers a couple days later. He tells Christians to endure and he says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Like I said, I've labored this long introduction on purpose. I want you to see clearly the point. Suffering, it's an expected part of the Christian experience in this life. And so you need to be prepared for it. You need to be ready to handle it. Far from appealing to your carnal nature, promising you health, wealth, and prosperity, God through Scripture wants to equip you and prepare you for the real Christian life, the life of discipleship. Which, look, it's full of true joy in Christ. I mean, there's amazing joy, but it it also comes with affliction. In Scripture, God used the Apostle Paul to help prepare us. And he also used the Apostle Peter. And now we can finally get to where we're headed, and that's 1 Peter chapter 4. We're we're making our way through 1 Peter. We're ending chapter 4 today, finally. Almost done with this letter. And in Peter's first letter here, his primary message is for these young Christians, these new recruits. And he wants them to know how how it is in the real world. 
He wants them to be prepared to live for the Lord, come what may. And as we learn from Peter, look, your best life, it's not going to be right now. It's not going to be now. It's going to be later when Christ returns and beyond. For now, though, he says, get ready, because through many tribulations, we too must enter the kingdom of God. It's something we've seen throughout First Peter. We saw it again last week in our text from, from last week, First Peter 4. We can read again verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Very explicitly we're told to expect suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. It just comes with the territory. It comes with following Christ. Yet Peter also informs us of of one of God's purposes in our trials. Through trials, God is refining us. He is strengthening us. He is improving us and proving us, like we learned last week. We have this image of the metallurgist who puts metal in the fire, not to destroy it, but to refine it and to prove it, to to strengthen it. That's what God is doing with us. And so God's good purpose in suffering is what we learned last week. Another question comes up, though, when we're talking about suffering. And if you're to be prepared, you need to know about it. It, It's the whole issue of injustice. You know, why does it seem that we Christians, we're over here suffering while those in the world, they truly are living their best lives right now. Why does the church suffer so much persecution in the world while the world prospers, that there's a seeming injustice to this? We are persecuted, some even martyred, but those in the world, they they live it up, they die peacefully. They have health, wealth, prosperity. On the outside, it really does look like they are the blessed ones. So, So what's going on with this? What do we make of this? Well, as Peter writes, he says, not, not so fast. As a, as a good drill sergeant, he's preparing us to encounter and handle suffering in this life. But what we're going to learn today is, not only do you need the right perspective on the present, you need the right perspective on the future. Don't let your, your present hardships cloud the future. You need to know that, that for unbelievers, it's true. It's true. Their best life is right now. For them, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Because in the next life, nothing awaits them but but judgment and condemnation. But for us, that there's no more encouraging news than to know that this isn't the best life. It's waiting for us in the next when, when Christ returns. It's been said that this life is the closest Believers get to hell. It's also the closest unbelievers get to heaven. And that's what we're going to learn in our text this morning. 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to uh, our passage for this morning. 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Well, today we've already spent more than half of our time on introduction, so I'm not going to worry about outlining this text. It's short, it's simple, three verses. Just go through it, read through it, explain it, apply it, and uh, take it as we go. So right away, verse 17, he starts off with this with this curious statement. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And you might be wondering, like, wait a second, I thought that as a Christian we, we pass out of judgment, right? So, so what does he mean here when he says judgment is going to begin right now with the church? What does that mean? Well, significantly, Peter does not use the word for condemnation here. For, as Romans 8.1 says, indeed, those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. If you know Christ, if you have been saved by him, you have passed out of that judgment, that final judgment, which brings condemnation. But there is still a form of judgment for believers. This judgment refers to an evaluation that results in either approval or disapproval. In the context, Peter links this judgment with that fiery ordeal from verse 12. Those experiences of suffering in this life which God brings upon you to test you. If you are here last week, you remember that this word picture that Peter developed. And in case you weren't, I'll, I'll repeat it again. He gives this picture of, of a refiner, you know, the metallurgist, the guy who puts metal in fire. And the refiner sits there and he throws metal into the fire. And he's trying to test it to see if it's true. And then he's trying to refine it, to purify it, to make it stronger. That's what the refiner does. And that's what God is doing to us through trials, refining us, testing us, also proving us. But see, that that process, that whole process, that testing, that's a form of judgment. It's an evaluation. It's a judgment. Picture this. Picture just a long, winding conveyor belt that, that goes through this intense furnace. On one end, you've got a guy, he's placing various materials on, on this belt. And he's just trying to find out what's fireproof. He wants to judge between materials, what's going to make it and what's not. He's got a whole bunch of things, paper, wood, metal. And as he puts everything onto the conveyor belt, he's going to find out which is which pretty soon. Because everything will go into the fire, but, but not everything's going to come back out. See, this is a form of testing. It's a judgment, judging between this and that, an evaluation. And this is what God is doing with us through trials and tribulations, Peter says. And God is starting this process with the church first. He is first putting the church through this fire. Now, be reassured, if you're truly in Christ, you've nothing to fear. You're like the metal. You'll pass through. It'll get hot, but you won't be consumed. You will be saved. In fact, God will even refine you through the process. But, but this is what he's doing. He's starting with you. 1 Corinthians 11:32 says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There is a judgment for Christians, but we are found approved and we pass out of the, 
the final condemnation. But there will come a day, though, when, when God's judgment will extend to the world. You see, everyone, because of sin, must pass through God's fire, so to speak, because he's holy. In fact, Hebrews 12.29 even calls God a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. It's really the fire of his holiness. But not everyone is going to make it out of that encounter with God's holiness, so to speak. Some, like paper, will be consumed by the fire. They will be, they'll be condemned by it because they were unapproved. What makes a difference? It's just Christ, knowing Christ or not. Those who have understood him, how he came to life or came to this earth to live a perfect life, yet he still died on the cross. And on the cross, he, he paid for our sins. He took our debt of sins on himself to pay for them such that we could be clean, forgiven, reconciled to God. He rose from the dead and he offers you forgiveness of your record book of sins. He offers you new life, eternal life, if you simply turn from your sins and follow him in this life. That's all you have to do. It's free. It costs you everything, though. But if you do that, you, you are found approved. But those who reject, though, they're, they're left without any protection when that judgment comes. Like Christ, or without Christ, they have no protection from the fire's full heat. This concept is not new that Peter brings up. It's found, actually, in the Old Testament. I think we've got the time. Why don't you turn back to Malachi chapter 3. Some of you are probably wondering, like, wait a second, where's Malachi? Just turn to Matthew and go backwards one book. That's all you got to do. It's easy. Go to Matthew and then just go backwards one. And you get to Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. We have this exact same concept in the the Old Testament of God. He's the refiner and his fire judges everything. Some things make it out. They're found approved. They survive the fire, though not without being a little little warm. But others don't pass through. Look at this image. Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 1. He's looking forward to this future time. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this coming day where the messenger, the the Messiah, will come. He will go to the temple where God's people are found. What's he going to do? Verse 2. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who's going to survive? And says, who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. What's he doing? Where's his first stop? This refiner with his fire. His first stop is, is the temple with God's people. The Levites, those were the Jews who served at the temple, the ones who offered up sacrifices to the Lord. He visits them first, and what does he do? He burns them. He, he refines them, but, but they survive like gold and like silver. In fact, they're made perfect so that they're able to finally present 
to the Lord offerings of righteousness. They pass through the fire, but God has refined them with it. Verse 4, he says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Finally, God will make his people perfect through this, through this fire. But then he turns his attention to someone else. Verse 5. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And what's going on? Do you notice the transition here? How God's fire turns from a purifying one to a consuming one. And his judgment turns from a correcting one to a condemning one. And where does it start? It starts with God's own people. Purifying them, making them holy before him. But where does it end? It ends with the world, with all those who do not fear God. And there's no escape. That's the image And you can turn back to 1 Peter 4 because he continues on in verse 17 right now with this image of the refiner's fire continued throughout. He continues in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Like we just saw, start with us first. The question he asks, though, what's going to happen to those who do not obey, is rhetorical, and the answer is obvious. The outcome, it's not good. It will be condemnation. And notice briefly in verse 17 how he describes the unbeliever. He doesn't refer to them as those who do not believe the gospel. He calls them those who do not obey the gospel. Now, Peter mentioned this obedience three times back in chapter 1. I'll just give you a refresher. You don't have to turn anywhere. You see, the gospel places demands on everyone. It comes with some demands. And contrary to the prosperity gospel preachers, the real gospel, the message of Christ, the message of his life, his death, his resurrection, his offer of life, comes with some demands. What are they? That you repent of your sins, you turn from your way, and you turn toward Christ. You follow him. It doesn't matter if you think that's true or not. That doesn't matter. You don't change reality, whatever you think. What matters, says God, is how you respond to the gospel. Are you going to obey its claims to repent of your sins and to follow Christ? Or are you going to disobey and turn from its demands? If you are one who rejects, who does not obey the gospel, or as Malachi puts it, who doesn't fear God, then your outcome is certain. He says that the fire is just going to consume you. When your judgment comes, you're not going to endure. You will be condemned in it. And in case you're not tracking, Peter elaborates in verse 18, which is actually it's a quote or reference to Proverbs 11.31. But look at verse 18 of, of chapter 4. He elaborates, he says, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, then what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Again, we've got this parallel rhetorical question. Question's obvious, the answer's obvious. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? 
For those who reject Christ, which is the only source of salvation, the answer is condemnation. Now, real quick, you're probably wondering what, what's up with this phrase in verse 18. It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Now, what, what does that mean? Is this talking about some sort of salvation through suffering? Well, no, the answer is no. There, there's no saving value in your suffering. Your, your suffering doesn't save you. You don't please God through suffering. Suffering in and of, in and of itself is not good, only what it produces. You know, in the Middle Ages, some guys thought otherwise. They actually believed that physical suffering was a form of penitence, like, like it earned God's favor. So they would walk around town, they would sing some hymns or chant something, and then they would whip themselves in their own back. They even, even bloody themselves, just constantly whipping, because they thought they were pleasing God. It's hard to inform them, but God, God is not pleased by that whatsoever. There's no saving or redemptive value in suffering or, or torment. So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved? Would you just go back to that word picture that Peter paints. God's the refiner. He's putting everyone on that conveyor belt of fire. And for, for the righteous, which are those in Christ, they're saved. But it's not without difficulty. You see, no one escapes the fire. Believers, we're saved from it, but we still have to go through it. We still have to encounter it. And that's the difficulty. It's these experiences of suffering in life. Believers are not immune from it. In fact, it's promised. But here it is. Here's the point of verse 18. It's really simple. He's saying this. Look, if salvation comes with this much fire, then what does damnation come with? Do you see the point? He's saying, look, if God's chosen believers... If they still get a pretty heavy portion of, of fire, so to speak, then what do the godless get? If even Christians suffer, and, and that's just what it looks like for God to save them, then what on earth might it look like for God to condemn someone? And you can imagine the suffering there must be unimaginable. Believers may be, may be singed by God's fire, really purified. They're not consumed by it. Unbelievers, however, are consumed. They're condemned in it forever. If you want, you can turn back briefly to Second Thessalonians. I'm just going to read chapter 1, this picture of, of that future time. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 5 through 10. It goes like this. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. He says, verse 6, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And he be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. 
It's the exact same picture. Christ is returning. He's coming as if a fire. Some will be found approved and will find glory when he returns. It's the day we await. Others will not. They will find, he says, eternal destruction, this separation from God and his goodness forever. This is the outcome, he says, of those who do not obey the gospel of God. This is what will become of the godless man and the sinner. So Peter's words, they they serve really both as an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement. If you're a believer, be encouraged. Your sufferings, they they may hurt. You may go through the fire, but you're not going to be consumed. God will save you, rescue you, in fact, purify you, and glory awaits for you. But at the same time, be warned, if you're an unbeliever, if you reject Christ, if you're hardened in your sin and you die in that unbelief, there's nothing to save you. Your outcome is eternal separation from God. The conclusion is very simple. Everyone suffers. Everyone's going to pass through the fire, but it's far better to suffer for God temporarily in this life than to suffer by God eternally in the next. So what's the takeaway from all this? So so now what? What do we do? Well, Look how Peter ends this chapter, verse 19, chapter 4. This is the takeaway. He says, Therefore, in light of all this, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. He's saying it really comes down to two things, two takeaways for believers in light of all this. Pretty simple. Number one, trust. Number two, obey. There it is, trust and obey. When you suffer, it makes you doubt everything. Even as a Christian, you you can face that temptation. Suffering makes you doubt. makes you doubt God, his love, his goodness, even his existence. makes you doubt yourself, your faith, your salvation, That's the danger of suffering. If you're not prepared, it can wipe you away. Suffering makes you doubt, but but you shouldn't. When you suffer for Christ, when you suffer for what is right, which is what it means to suffer according to the will of God, don't fret, don't worry, don't doubt. He says, first, what what should you do? Entrust your soul to God. In other words, you're you're trusting him for your, your future. You're trusting him for your eternal destiny. This word entrust, it's a banker's term. Today, even in the ancient world as well, we, we deposit our money into a bank. We take our valuables, put them into a safety deposit box. Somewhere we can put them for safekeeping. And we're trusting someone to keep it, to guard it, to watch it for us so that we can get it later. And likewise, he says, we are trusting God with our eternal treasure, our, our souls, our future with him. However, anytime you give your money or your valuables to someone, it raises some concerns. You know, it's like, hey, let me give, your, give me your money. I'm going to watch it for you. Don't worry. I'm good, right? It makes you wonder, is this person capable of keeping it safe? I mean, how do I know someone's not going to come along and just take my money from them? Also, is this person trustworthy to keep it safe? How do I know they just won't take my money themselves and run? But he's saying here in this verse, no such concerns are needed with God because who is he? Who is he? He is our faithful creator. 
God's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's good. He's reliable. He's not going to lose your salvation. He's not going to misplace your eternal life. And he's also the creator. No one can overpower him. No one can steal your life from him. He's good and he's powerful. And so all the while as you suffer, you just need to trust him. You just need to trust him and entrust your soul to him. And while you do that, secondly, you need to obey. As verse 19 ends, you need to focus on doing what is right. We've seen that like a hundred times in First Peter. It's one of his big themes over and over again. If you're going to suffer, at least suffer for doing what is right as opposed to doing what is wrong. Don't bring judgment and suffering on yourself by doing evil. Rather, over and over again, pursue Christ-likeness. Just do what is right. Endure. And you're good to go. It's really, no, it's really not surprising that unbelievers live for this world. I mean, why wouldn't they? For them, this really is as good as it's going to get. For them, this is it. This is the best that they're ever going to see. This is their best life right, right now. They have nothing to live for in the next, nothing to look forward to but judgment. Yet this is a sad thing. This should compel us to, to share the real good news of Christ with them. Have a, a genuine compassion on the lost. Bring them the message of life in Christ. Don't let them just go without a word, without the gospel. At least tell them that they may know what to expect. At the same time, don't fall prey to their desires. It's, it's not surprising when unbelievers live for this world. It is surprising when believers do. Health, wealth, prosperity, look, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with them. But, but we don't live for them. Most of the time, they just distract us from what really matters in this life, which is knowing God. God satisfies the soul, not, not stuff. So learn that lesson. Suffering is going to come someday for everyone. Judgment is going to come someday for everyone. And in that day, everyone's health and wealth and prosperity is going to be taken away. So what are you going to have left? And for those who know Christ, we still have everything. And that's all that matters. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we do confess Christ and we do know that in him, it's true. We have everything. This world and it, its stuff, its, its possessions, they're all going to fade. They're all going to burn. They're all going to pass away. You don't, however, Lord. You will not pass away. Our life in Christ will not pass away. And our future with him will not pass away as well. They are our eternal, unperishable destinies. And, and we thank you for it. We look forward to it. We rejoice in it even now. And I pray that All of us here may live in light of that future and be prepared, though, for what we might encounter in the present. This life for us, it's judgment. This is your judgment on the church to evaluate, to prove, to purify, to test. Help us to be ready for that and to be found approved. Not ashamed of you or the gospel, but just trusting Christ and and clinging to you all the while. Lord, we we trust you. We seek to obey you. Give us grace in both of those. Help us to endure whatever trials we are going through, all the while looking forward to that time when you return for us and and we know you forevermore. Look forward to that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.